If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to go to the book of Ruth. Ruth is the eighth book in the Old Testament, and as Jeff said at the top of the service, uh, we are in uh, the second week of a sermon series called The Sovereignty of God. And the big idea uh, of the sovereignty of God is asking this question week after week as we go through the book of Ruth. Is God still in control? With all the dizzying chaos and turmoil in the world, is God really in control? Is God really all-powerful? Is God still on the throne watching and taking care of everything? Is God sovereign? And if God is sovereign, if God is in control, if God is in power, why does God allow all this mess in the world and in our own lives to continue on? And I think it's a really good question for us to camp out on for a few weeks. So uh, we're going to be in Ruth 1, uh, beginning with verse 19. Everybody in Ruth 1, you can pull it up in your cellular mobile. I see some of you have got your Bibles. Uh, I just, I stick with uh, the book, uh, the paper book. That's what's most comfortable for me. Well, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for yet another beautiful morning in your sanctuary, your creation among your people. God, we thank you for all the ways in which you're moving and breathing in this world. But God, at the same time, we wonder, are you still in control? Are you still on the throne? Are you still sovereign? So God, speak to us this morning. Give us some good news. Give us some encouragement and challenge us, Lord, uh, because we need some good news and we need to go from this place today filled with your spirit uh, for another week before us. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the summer of 1984, uh, a friend and I uh, were looking for something to do because it was cloudy and drizzly in our hometown of Austin, Minnesota. And so we decided to go to Echo Lane's bowling alley, and uh, we were doing what people do when you go to the bowling alley as a couple teenagers. We were bowling a few frames uh, and having a good time that summer. And I remember as we're bowling, I remember looking down to the left and thinking to myself, there's quite a few people on that end of the bowling alley, our end of the bowling alley, not so many people. I don't know why I was thinking that at the time, but uh, there I am uh, getting ready, standing there, bowling ball in hand, fingers inserted, bowling ball, I'm left-handed. And so I'm getting ready to bowl and all of a sudden the lights flicker. And I remember hearing some people uh, in the bowling alley, of course, go, ooh, you know, it was kind of one of those things. I didn't think much of it, but about three seconds later, it went pitch black in the whole bowling alley. And in that moment, I don't know why, but all of a sudden, I just froze instinctually, closed my eyes. And all I remember was hearing what sounded like a train passing overhead in this deafening, loud noise. I'm just standing there with a bowling ball in my hands. And it didn't last much more than, I don't know, five or six seconds. But I remember opening my eyes, and it was light out, and it was raining on me. 
and my friend was down at my ankles holding on to me. And I looked around, and the sky was out, roofing material on me. And of course, the, the uh, roof had caved in. But mostly what happened to the roof in that moment was a funnel cloud came through right overhead, lifted up a lot of the debris, and scattered around uh, the parking lot. Now, um, I was in shock. We were both in shock, and our immediate reaction was, let's get out of here. Let's go. And so I'm still standing there with the bowling ball, and I'm sure I set it down very gently because I didn't want to ruin the bowling ball or the floor in that moment. We gathered whatever we could find, and we walked out uh, to the car, and my, the first thing I saw when I walked out into the parking lot, that there was a car flipped over, and all the other cars in the parking lot had shattered windows because of the air pressure of this funnel cloud that had just gone through. We walked to my friend's car, and we got in the car, uh, and because they were driving, uh, I was sitting on the passenger side as we're coming out of the exit of the parking lot. I noticed that there was a downed power line in our way. And not thinking, I got out of the car, walked over to the power line to pick it up, not even considering there might be thousands of volts of electricity, and I just simply moved it off to the side of the road so that we could drive out of the parking lot. We went home. I remember sitting down, telling my family about what we had just experienced, and then realizing I'm still wearing my bowling shoes. I kept those bowling shoes for about a decade just to remember that day by. You know, I got to say, 2020 feels a whole lot like 1984. Going through life, doing what we do, go to work, go to school, go to sports, go to church, spend time with family and friends, and then the metaphorical funnel cloud comes in and just destroys and disrupts everything. And 2020 has been quite a year, hasn't it? A year filled with uh, one crisis after another, a health crisis, an economic crisis, financial crisis, racial crisis. And then more recently, uh, we've had tornadoes and hurricanes coming through. And oh, by the way, we've got just a little bit of a tension going on in our nation with the uh, national election coming up. You all know we have a national election coming up, right? Just no stress in our lives and in our world. And even the experts are predicting already, this is going to be chaotic. We might have results by 2021. Buckle up, folks. We got a long way to go with this chaos, with this stress that's all that's going on in the world. And in many ways, I think that is the story of the book of Ruth. This young Jewish family going about their way, doing what they do in their Jewish world, and then everything falls apart. You know, the interesting thing about this 3,000-year-old story uh, called the Book of Ruth is that it doesn't begin uh, with Ruth. It begins with a, 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 a Jewish family, a guy by the name of Elimelech and his wife Naomi. They've got two uh, Jewish boys, and they're doing what they do, going about their business, living their Jewish lives. 
then all of a sudden, not a tornado shows up, but there is a famine in the land. And so Elimelech and his wife Naomi, they pack up their bags, they pack up their boys, and they move off to a pagan nation, a pagan region called Moab, because they heard there's food over there. So they left all that's familiar, their lives are completely disruptive, and they go to Moab. And when they get to Moab, uh, the two young men meet a couple pagan Moab, uh, Moabite uh, young women by the name of Orpah and Ruth. That's where Ruth shows up on the scene. She's a pagan living in a pagan land in Moab. And of course, these young men marry these young women. And then things continue to get worse and worse because pretty soon Elimelech dies, Naomi's husband. And then the two boys die, and it just continues to go bad to worse to worse, more tragedy. And so here we are, the, the part of the story where there's three widowed women, Naomi, the, the Jewish mom, and these two pagan Moabite girls, Orpah and Ruth. And so Naomi looks at the girls and says, young ladies, go back and find some pagan Moabite men, have some pagan Moabite babies. Maybe your lives will get better. I'm going home. I'm going back to Bethlehem. I'm going back to be with my Jewish family and my Jewish people. Orpah, uh, one of the Moabite young women, looks at Naomi and says, okay, see ya. And we never hear from Orpah again in the Bible. But Ruth looks at Naomi, her mother-in-law, and says, No, no, you're not going to get away that easy. I'm going with you. In fact, I want to go to be with you to this land that I've never been to, to be among a people that I've never been, among the the Jewish people, and I want to worship your God. I want to serve your God, Naomi. And so in that moment, Ruth has this incredible conversion experience, and she's off on this journey, off on this adventure to a new place that she has never been before, but she is filled with faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Naomi and Ruth are traveling back home uh, to Naomi's home, uh, back to Bethlehem. So that's where the story picks up today. In Ruth 1, uh, we just went through 18 verses that we covered last week. Um, So here we go with verse 19, uh, Ruth 1, uh, beginning with 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? And and Naomi said, don't call me Naomi, she told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Now, Naomi means sweet. So as life got more and more difficult and harder and tragedy upon tragedy, Naomi descended from being sweetness into bitterness. And that's, you know, a very understandable uh, response for Naomi. Verse 21. Naomi continues, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, 
uh, her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So it says that Naomi, in verse 22, Naomi returned. Naomi returned to her people and to her land, uh, to, to, the, to the place where they worshiped God. And this is an Old Testament word for repent. That's what returning means. It means just, uh, repent means, it means to return, to go back to God. I think it's a great reminder for us in this story this morning, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of calamity, God invites us to return back to him, to come back to our maker and our creator. Chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clam of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up what uh, the leftover grain behind uh, anyone in, in whose eyes I find favor. So here these two ladies are returning home, and they're homeless, and they're poor, and they don't have much going for them. And so Ruth says to Naomi, I'm hungry. I'm going to go get some food. You wait here. And so what the, in the ancient times uh, among the Jewish people, they had this concept of gleaning. And what God told people throughout the Old Testament times is, Here was what I, here's what I want you to do. Whenever you plant crops uh, and harvest your crops, I want you to leave some of the crops in your field. And I want you to do that so that people who are less fortunate than you can come along and pick up some of the grain for themselves. This is long before the welfare state. This is long before social security. This was God's way of teaching God's people, you need to take care of one another. You need to take care of those who are less fortunate than you. And it's called gleaning. And it was in this agricultural society, it made perfect sense. So that's what these ladies are doing is they're gleaning from the field. They're picking up the leftovers uh, from the field. And then uh, Ruth, uh, Ruth says, let's go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now this word favor is the Old Testament word for grace. We talk a lot about grace uh, in the church today. And this idea is, it comes from the Old Testament idea of favor. We're going to continue on. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. It says, if you've got a, a pen or uh, something to write in your Bibles, I underlined where it says, as it turned out. As it turned out, you want to underline that. Other translation uh, maybe says, as it happened. If we were to read this in the original Hebrew language, it very literally it would say, in the happenstance that it happened to happen, Ruth showed up in this field that was owned by Boaz. See, if the author of this uh, book were standing here today, he would have a big grin on his face. It just happened to happen that this happened, that Ruth showed up in Boaz's field. Wink, wink. It was just lucky 
that she showed up, air quotes, right? It was just one of these coincidences that was going on in the story. Of course, this is just a literary device that we call irony. And the author is kind of going over the top to make the point that there is no such thing as things just happen to happen to happen. This is not random. This is purposeful. This happened for a reason. You know, it reminds me of Psalm 139.16. You saw me even before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. This is God's promise to all of us, that God knows all the days of our lives. God counts all the hairs on our head. God knows everything about you, all your relationships, all your circumstances. Nothing is a surprise to God uh, about this world and most certainly not about you. God already knows. God already knows what's going on. Jesus would later uh, uh, share this same concept or the same idea about who God is and God's sovereignty and God's uh, all power and all knowing. One day he was with his disciples and he said, you know, are not two uh, sparrows that are worth a penny? God even knows when they fall out of the sky. God knows the slightest smallest details that are happening on this earth, even the the most insignificant and we might even say the most worthless details, Jesus says are not worthless and those details matter. God is completely aware of all that is going on in the world today. And so I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert in this moment that um, Ruth's happenstance happened to happen in Boaz's field, Boaz would become the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. It didn't just happen, folks, that Ruth showed up in that place. There was a plan, and God had a plan long, long before. But in that moment, it just seemed random and happenstance. Let's see, verse 4. Just then, Boaz arrived uh, from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. I love this part of the story. Boaz shows up at the office And he looks out at the congregation and he says, hey, the Lord be with you. He said, the Lord be with you. Yeah, Boaz was part of a liturgical church, right? And then he looked at his family and said, lift up your hearts. And they all said, yeah, this is what's going on. It's this liturgical greeting. And I I think this, again, is not an insignificant detail. I think what Boaz is doing in that moment is is proclaiming his faith in God. And and in his everyday life that he's going about at the office, um, wherever he's at, he's just saying, you know what? I'm going to acknowledge that God is in this place right here, right now. And oftentimes we get all liturgical uh, and use churchy talk when we come to church on Sunday morning. Not Boaz. 
It's Tuesday at about three o'clock and he shows up and says, the Lord be with you. I love that. And I think it's a great reminder that we too are invited to carry our faith into our workplace, into our schools, into whatever we're doing. And we just ought to every single day acknowledge that God is sovereign in spite of what's going on. That God is all-powerful even though it seems like we can't see his power. That we ought to proclaim, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I don't get all the mess. I don't get all the turmoil. I don't get all the chaos in the world. But I believe this is God's day. And I'm just going to rejoice and be glad in it. Verse 5. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is a Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves from behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from the morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. This is a significant statement of how Boaz talks to her. He just learns that a foreigner has shown up. Somebody from the outside, somebody who uh, comes from a pagan land, Moab. She's poor. She's homeless. She's godless. And rather than look down on her and call her, uh, you know, a, a godless woman, he looks at her and says, my daughter. I love how Boaz gives Ruth a new identity. She's no longer defined by her past. But Boaz says, this is who you are. You are a child of God, my daughter. It's such a powerful statement in the story. You know, I'm also reminded that um, one day Jesus, uh, toward the end of his life, was gathered with his disciples And as they were sharing a meal, he looked at his uh, disciples and said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And I think for us as Christ followers, that's good news. We're not defined by our past. We're not defined by the places we came from. We're not defined by all the mistakes that we made. We are children of God. Amen? That's what God does to us. He takes us in our mess from the past and says, I'm giving you a brand new identity. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are my child. And that's what's going on in the story of Ruth here today. Let's see. Verse 8. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. So not only in this story 
does Boaz give Ruth a brand new identity. He gives her a brand new family, a brand new place where she can be protected, a brand new place where she can be surrounded, a brand new place where she doesn't have to worry about all the troubles and the struggles of the world. She is safe. Folks, that's supposed to be the church. That's supposed to be us. And so this is why we gather together on Sunday, right? To be a part of a community, to be a part of a herd, to be a part of a a group of people where it can be safe, a place where uh, we watch watch out for one another. We watch one another's backs. And this is why we're having the, the meeting next week and next Sunday to talk a little bit about what does it mean to be a part of Faith Lutheran Church? Well, it means that we come broken And we surround one another and we walk with one another and we do life together. This is all about the church. And Boaz is proclaiming uh, the importance and the significance of the church. Verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you have noticed me uh, a beggar, a foreigner? And we come back to that word favor again. This idea of grace, this foreigner, this homeless woman. And she says, why have I found favor? I don't get it. What, what, what's so special about me? I'm just a Moabite woman from a pagan land whose family made a lot of bad decisions, had a lot of bad luck in my life. Why have I found such favor in your eyes, Boaz? Ruth doesn't get it. Ruth does not understand the concept of grace. She doesn't understand the concept of why would anyone look upon her with favor? You know, last week we talked about why do bad things happen to good people? Today we're looking at another question. Why does anything good happen to bad people? Why does good stuff happen to us? I mean, we don't deserve it, right? I mean, we're scoundrels. We are sinners. We are broken people. And I have to tell you as a pastor, I find that just as many people struggle with this whole idea of why, does, why do bad things happen to good people, I have just as many people who struggle with why is God so good to me? I don't know if I can accept God's grace in my life. I am so undeserving of God's favor in my life. Just a couple days ago, I actually got a phone call uh, from a middle-aged guy uh, in the community. And he said, you know what? My mom's uh, days on this earth are growing very short. And she's anxious. She is really upset. Can you come over and talk to her? And so I went over to her house, and I sat with her, and I listened to her. Uh, And when I showed up, she was fidgety and nervous and anxious. And she looked at me, and she said, Pastor, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know. I have made so many mistakes in my life. I have done so many bad things. And she just went on and on and on, pouring out her heart, just this conviction, this deep conviction. She's, it's like she had her whole life passing before her, and she's seeing all the sin in her life, and it just had her tied up in knots, and she was so anxious. And as I listened to this woman confess her sin, I reminded her with, in 1 John 1, 9, If you confess your sin, God who is faithful and just will forgive you all your sin. 
And I kept reminding her over and over in the midst of her sin, in the midst of her confession of her sin, that God has forgiven her of all her sin. And I said, he's washed you clean just by you speaking and repenting. You're good. You are forgiven. You are a child of God. And I didn't think that was enough, so I brought out the communion elements And as we went through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, I said, Jesus suffered for you. He sacrificed for you. Yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you need the redeeming. You need Christ's blood to wash over you. And guess what? He loves you that much. That's exactly what he did. Now here's the body and blood of Jesus Christ given and shed for you. And I have to tell you, there is something incredibly terrifying sitting with someone at the end of their life, confessing their sin, pouring out their soul, all their wrongdoings. But there's also something incredibly beautiful about it. Because she had come to that place of great honesty. She came to that place of of saying, I am a sinner in need of Christ's redeeming. And she was laying in a chair, and if she could in that moment, she would have gotten down on her knees and said, I surrender. I can't do it on my own. I'm not ready. And she wasn't. And none of us are. All we can do is surrender and say, God, I give up. I'm a sinner in need of your redeeming. And I see this time and time in the church, even among some of you who wrestle with this idea that God loves you so much that he's willing to wipe away all your sin and he's going to do it by dying on a cross. And I hear from people in our congregation and in the church, I'm not worthy. I don't think God could really take away my sin. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know the ways in which I've sinned. And I want you to hear this morning that you are worthy of Christ's love. You are worthy of Christ's grace because he's sovereign. He's in control. He is all-powerful. And it's one of the great scandals of the Christian faith that no matter what you've done yesterday Right here, right now, today, Christ comes to you and says, I love you and I forgive you. Case closed. It's done. You're forgiven. And of course, this is what Ruth is struggling with you. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? Boaz replies in verse 11, I've been told all about what you've done uh, for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and come to live with a people you did not know. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, whose wings you have come to take refuge. And I love this imagery of under whose wings. Because this is where grace comes from. It comes from under the wings of Jesus Christ. He gathers us together and and just offers us grace upon grace. 
You know, I'm also reminded of uh, at the end of Jesus' life, he's in Jerusalem. He's looking out at, at the people of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem, and he's lamenting. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've killed the prophets and those who came before. How I long to gather you under my wings as a mother hen does for a chicken or something like that, paraphrased. That's the imagery that Jesus gives us. He just wants to nurture us and hold us and care for us and protect us under his wings. That's where grace is found, not out there. It's found under the wings, under the arms, in the arms of Jesus. Verse 13, Then Ruth said, May, uh, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, you have put me at ease by the speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come on over here. Have some bread and dip it into the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. It says she ate all she wanted. Do you hear how the story is just filled with tension and anxiety? And the moment that Ruth receives this grace, all of a sudden everything calms down and relaxes. It says that she had all that she wanted. Another translation says she was satisfied. This is what we talk about in the church, the peace that passes all understanding. Ruth had enough. God's grace is enough to come over our lives and just make us go, ah, this feels so good. I'm just in the presence of Christ. This is why some people in the midst of great cra uh, tragedy and calamity can have this extraordinary peace in their lives. It's right out of the story because they've got Christ. Christ has just given them their grace and washed over there. And they'll make, I don't get it all, but I'm satisfied. I've got enough. I've got enough grace, but it doesn't end there. It says, and she had some left over. If, if you're not sure if God has enough grace for you, there's more than enough. There's grace upon grace upon grace poured over your life. Just in case you're not sure that you've got enough of God's grace in your life, there's enough. And this is always how God works. He never just gives us enough. He gives us an abundance Remember when Jesus was feeding the people, the feeding of the 5,000, they sat out on a lawn, and then after they ate, they gathered up 12 baskets, more than enough, abundance. And I find that oftentimes as we go through life, many of us go, yeah, that abundance is for somebody else, but it's not for me. That's a great story, just not for me. And what I want you to hear today is that abundance of grace is for you, an overflow. And just when you don't think there's enough grace for you, Jesus keeps pouring on more grace and more grace. No matter what you've done, he has forgiven you. He loves you. And you need to just rest in his goodness and in his grace. So maybe the obvious question as I close, wrap up this morning is have you received the grace of Jesus in your life? Have you sat under his wings? Have you allowed him to just hold you 
to love you and say, I forgive you? Have you sat with Jesus and allowed him to say, I don't care if you're a Moabite, a Normalite, a Bloomingtonite. You're my son. You're my daughter. You are my child. That's grace. And some of you, maybe you did that a long time ago. Maybe today is the day for you to receive that grace again in your life. To be satisfied, to be filled, and to just wonder what it's like to have an abundance flow over you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this extraordinary story that continues to boggle our minds, Lord, that in the midst of great chaos and calamity out in the world, in the midst of great chaos and calamity in our own lives. God, we continue to wonder, are you still in control? Are you still on the throne? Are you still sovereign? Are you still all-powerful? And God, today as we worship you, we're going to declare like Boaz, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. God, today is a day where we, by faith, are inviting your grace, your favor to come into our lives, to wash over us, to hold us, to love us, to name us and claim us, to call us your sons and daughters. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.